The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. I am joined by my co-host this week, Elisa. How are you, Elisa? Howdy, howdy. Oh, my. Um, I'm I. How you You are continuing this show's co-host winning streak of fantastic heads of hair. Like just well, you know, tremendous. <laughs> Zach Sloan a couple weeks ago had the spit curl rocking. He was looking Ooh. really cool, like nice gel thing mm. going. You rocking the high altitude, the crimson fire in your hair. I'm oh, just so so impressed. I feel like the radio audience missing out, but the Twitch audience, the Facebook Live audience, is definitely getting their money's worth. So good to see you. How have you been? I miss you. I've been chill. I've been all right. Um, It's been kind of hard at work with my sort of day job type gigs. Also kind of reworking things on the Patreon side, uh, figuring things out as uh, Evan is heading off to tour next month. So reconfiguring our kind of creative work and life schedules. It's, It's a lot. But um, I'm I'm excited. It's all it's all good things. It's the good kind of busy. That's exactly what I always tell people when they say busy. We say busy is good and it beats the alternative. And when you said gigs, that was gigs, plural. You got a lot of proverbial irons in the fire and perhaps some literal irons as well. You're just busy and it's exciting and it's fun. The Patreon, the uh, the album that you're working on, that's still a thing, right? Oh, yeah, fully. Um, actually, Evan is uh, currently working on setting up his guitar rig so that he can finish up tracking some guitars, and we can send those off to the rhythm guitar player and bass player uh, to get uh, their tracks added to that. So hopefully that should be happening late this week, early next week. So things are moving. Things are things are trucking along. So we I'm are excited. all, and I say we, all the people watching, listening, we all are so excited to have this come out as somebody who's known you for way too many years now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've heard all the music you've created. I enjoy it. I, I'm I, sorry. I got the early <laughs> deep cuts, the stuff that oh, you, you probably think that you want to forget, but you know, th- oh, those, yeah. those original fans of yours, we still appreciate it. And we've, we've enjoyed your development as an artist along the way. And we can't wait to see the next piece of work. Elisa, you picked a great show to co-host this week. This is going to be a fun one. Our guest coming up after the break, comedian Chris Gethard. Such a cool guest, has done so many awesome things as a creator, as a podcaster, stand-up comedian, about 10 other titles that he has, (laughs) uh, came up through the Upright Citizens Brigade, got his start in New York City public access, went all the way to cable television and sketch comedies. He does so much, and I feel like the viewers and the listeners are going to learn so much from this guy. We have not had a comedian on since we've moved into the live stream format. About freaking time. Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, a a creative is a creative, and anybody who is trying to kind of spin words or music in entertainment, I think, uh, is, is very much welcome on this here platform. I am trying subtly in my own small way, moving things around. Like you, people notice, like the the original fans of this show know that we were very indie music focused. That's what this was all about: was helping indie musicians, and that's still very much you know a big part of what we do. But I've tried to expand the field a little bit. We now say that we're empowering indie creators. We ask the guests, "Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there?" And I say that for two reasons: the 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 bigger tent, two reasons behind it. One, because the lines are blurring, right? Nobody's just one thing anymore. A lot of musicians are doing comedy or they're cooking or they're dancing. The, everything's blurring. I mean, uh, Bella Porch has a, a pop song now. So I mean, it's a, yes. it's a, it's the real wild west. And secondly, you know, we, we want to have a larger community here. A lot of the interests that indie creators have, regardless of your art form, are similar. And so we all want to be one big tent and have that tent be right here on Break the Business, Sirius XM Channel 145, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, Twitter Live, uh, 
everywhere else that they have us. And twitch.tv slash break the business. And twitch.tv slash break the business. <laughs> Excited to have Chris Gethard coming up in the next segment. He's got a new comedy special coming out now called uh, Half My Life. It's available on Amazon Prime, YouTube, Apple TV, pretty much all the major streaming platforms. Excited to talk to him all about that. But before we bring him on, Elisa, I got some good Elisa topics here. I think, okay. I think I got stuff that I think is going to really excite you and interest you and be pertinent to the work that you're doing, especially because you just brought up the new album that you're working on, the EP. And the, EP. the creative process that that entails, including writing new songs and putting yep. creative works together. And it made me think a lot about what I've kind of learned about the creative process from the many creative professionals that we've had on this program. Nothing that I've learned firsthand because I don't do that kind of creating, but I listen to other creators. And throughout the years that we've done this show, Elisa, I've come across this recurring theme that I've heard a lot of creators on this program mention that I like to call hyper-creation. The idea that your best work comes as a creator when you're constantly creating when you're putting yourself under what could possibly be considered unreasonable deadlines and just keep putting stuff out, writing a new song every week, writing a new song every day, and what that does to your creative process. And for me, the best example of that has been a guest that we've had on this program before, Jonathan Mann, who is the Guinness yes. World Record holder for the most consecutive days writing one song per day. I think he's at over 4,400 songs now or something wow. insane like that. And when I asked him about why you do this, because my <laughs> first question to him was something along the lines of what in the hell is the matter with you? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, does does having to write a song every day kind of inhibit your creative process? And what he had relayed to me is the idea that writing a song every day helps the creative process. It, it's, it makes his creative muscles stronger. And certainly... If you're going to write a song every day, not every song you're going to write is going to make the 12-track album. It's not going to be of that quality. But he's keeping those muscles moving, and it's making him a better creator. And he's doing some cool stuff with this song-a-day thing he's been doing for over a decade now. And it then came up again for me most recently this month with YouTube creator Wheezy Waiter, who—he does these YouTube videos, Wheezy Waiter, where he does monthly challenges. He does— uh, uh, a video about what it was like for him eating no sugar for a month, or I'm going to oh, take God. a cold shower every day for a month. Two things <laughs> that, yeah, I, I see your face. Two things I would never want to do for a month, <laughs> but he did it for the YouTube views, I suppose. But his latest video that came out earlier this month, his most recent monthly challenge is a video entitled, I destroyed my perfectionism by writing a song every day for a month. And so the video is all about, him getting up every day, and that day was not over unless he wrote a song, and he stuck to it every day for 30 days. And for him, he talks about how it made him a better creator, and it changed his perspective on creating. It it boosted that creativity muscle. I, I think of um, the Maya Angelou quote that I love coming back to when I talk about this topic, which is, she once said, you, can, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. And so yes. it, you know... Creating every day doesn't stunt your ability to create. It actually heightens it. And so for him, he was a very much a perfectionist songwriter. He, he could not move on to the next song until the first song was done, and it had to be absolutely perfect, and he would spend weeks and weeks on it. And so for him to have to create a song every day was like his own personal hell because it went <laughs> against everything that he's, he's uh, stood for as a creator. But it turned out to be a positive experience for him. I'm interested as a songwriter, what do you think of this? Could you write a song a day? I probably could in the sense that like it it depends on what the on what the sort of measure of success is in terms of what constitutes a song, right? Mm. Um I feel like if especially because I grew up in um just absorbing musicals and parody music um and I feel like growing up with that particular kind of wordplay i feel like i could probably you know bust some stuff out every day but the idea of turning off the critic brain mm -hmm. in the process that that's a no <laughs> so it sounds <laughs> like you you would have the same mental block that wheezy waiter did in that turning off that perfectionist and yes making yourself okay with bad <laughs> yes would be a, a a challenge among challenges for you 
Uh, yeah, no, because there's there's like the the way that I write a song, and then of course because of you know the the pan dulce, like I haven't had a commute, and usually one of the the times that I would write songs the most would be on the way from a thing, you know, that would make me feel some strong emotion that I just had to sing out in the car. And so like my, my muses are limited. My, my, my input, you know, is, is limited. Um, so mm. even just, just the concept with like limited stimuli just from the outside world generally nowadays, that seems difficult, but then also because I'm the kind of person that I'm like, I don't want to even release this or tell anybody that this thing even exists. <laughs> and that's the other thing, too, that I get kind of stuck in my head on is that, like, I think that because of social media, like, I feel that everything is for public consumption and should be eligible for public consumption. Therefore, it has to be perfect enough for public consumption. Um, so and- the idea of writing a song and keeping it in a drawer... Yeah, like that feels like okay, but there's still something in me that feels like I have to like 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 there is I don't know who's watching, but someone just saw what I just did and is judging it and and has found it wanting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Elisa that you brought up this idea of you know, wanting it to be perfect and being okay with it being not great because of the for the sake of the exercise, you got to get it done by the end of the day. And Wheezy Waiter actually talks about that phenomenon with Jonathan Mann, who he interviewed in this video. And uh, Lauren, if you have the clip queued up, I'd love to play this for Elisa and everybody listening because their perspective is interesting. I think it, it, it'll definitely make you think, given what you just said. It jumps out to me. Are there days that you phone it in, though? Oh, yeah. Phoning it in is key to keeping it going. <laughs> I talk to so many people who have done a song a day or some kind of thing a day, and the people who stop doing it are the people who can't phone it in. They care too much. That's the key to the whole thing is to not care <laughs> because then you're just free to, like, make something. Yeah, most of them are going to be kind of shitty or whatever, and that's fine. I feel like that is what this is all about. I feel like it's, like, getting yourself to not give a shit. Maybe that's the entire moral of my video I'm making out of yeah. this. You have to care enough to continue working, but also don't give it. You have to forego ego at times. You have to have moments where you're like, well, this isn't the best thing I could do at this moment, but I don't have that much time. Maybe it is the best thing I could do in this moment. Maybe this is this is as good as it gets. I mean, it really is that Martha Graham quote. Like that Martha Graham that's quote, good, like good. you can't say it better than she did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And- so, uh, Jonathan Mann is actually the best example of this in terms of, being okay with just getting a song out there so that you meet your one song a day requirement. If you go through his song a day videos, there's days where Jonathan Mann was just violently ill with some kind of horrific virus that's like causing him to vomit. And so the song is just like him in front of the microphone being like, I'm so sick, so sick. And that's the song, but he gets it out because he didn't, he didn't want to break the streak. And is it great? Is it album quality? No, but I think what they're saying in the video is that the point of the exercise is not to create something in that moment that's album quality, but that the process and keeping the juices flowing and keeping the creativity streak going will hopefully pay creative dividends for somebody later and lead to great, awesome works that you're actually okay with the outside world seeing. I... D- I, I... Tear my heart open. I sew myself <laughs> shut. My weaknesses maybe that I care too much, apparently, and 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 cannot phone it in. Uh, Papa Roach had it had it correct. I'm. It's it's wild. That that is sort of one of the things that has kind of helped, and also like you know one one of the things that you discover being in your 30s, which is something you get to look forward to. Younger creators is turning. You know, just just dialing back the care. Yeah. <laughs> just dialing it back just a little bit. I'm I'm not there creatively yet. There's I, I I still feel like I have something to prove to I don't know who. I don't know who. But um but definitely dialing back that dialing back that care and just just doing it for the sake of doing it. Um that it is it is a block, but it is it is one that I kind of I don't know, feel interested in 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 cracking. Yeah. Well, and there's sort of, I mean, look, I, I've known you for forever. And in the time of the many things that I would ascribe to your creative process, being an outside observer of it, you're definitely a perfectionist in your creative, creative output. 
and that's you know that's not just a that's not an insult i mean it's 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 partially a knock if you go by sort of the adherence to this video but i mean perfectionist also means that you make sure your stuff's really really good and it is but you know so for you it is a it's a block because of of what because of the trait that makes your work so good the profession perfectionism would make it hard for you to engage in a process like this which for folks like jonathan mann and wheezy waiter allows them to become more creative and get juices flowing and unlock ideas that they wouldn't have otherwise had i want to play this other clip for you here Mm. of wheezy waiter talking about what this 30-day challenge, which was excruciating for him, I don't discount that, but what it did for his creative output. I wrote 30 songs. A few you could argue are not songs. I think they're all songs. Many of them, I'm going to take and I'm going to make an album and I'm going to bring a bunch of them to my band, Riffless Pony Club, and make fully produced songs out of them because I'm really, really happy with them. It has transformed the way I view songwriting, creativity in general. I realized the only obstacle to becoming whatever I want, be it like a filmmaker, musician, whatever you want to do, the only obstacle is just not doing it, making excuses to not do it. When you want to create something, you're addicted to the idea of creating something. You're addicted to the possibility of what it could be. And then once you make the thing, you the possibility is gone. But when you do it over and over and over again, a new possibility crops up. What am I going to make tomorrow? What am I going to make five days from now after I've made five things up till then? What will be all of these other things that I am going to make for sure? And it's a better feeling. I feel great. I didn't. I loved it. It just seems like such a smaller, easier task now. If you're writing a song that has lyrics... It's just some lyrics over some sounds in whatever combination you want. That's there all it is. Go. Anytime that I sit there to try to try to make it something I, specific. Like this. I, I, I think it's funny at the end of this video, he talks about how I loved this experience. It was wonderful. It's maybe a better writer. And then for the first like 75% of this video, he's like, this is so hard. This is the worst. But I guess it was worth it for him. And, and though I don't create art for a living, there are other things that I have done in my life, in my professional life, that I was able to achieve by being purposeful about doing something every day, right? There's certain areas of law that I wanted to learn that I didn't know, or certain projects that I've been meaning to tackle. And I've read a lot of research that says that if you do it every day, even if what you do that day isn't great, even if you just do it for 10 seconds— if you are purposeful about doing it every day and resolving to make sure you at least start it, then that success builds off each other and you accomplish a lot more than if you just sort of say, I'm going to schedule some time next week to do this and then next week comes and you don't do it. Whereas if you say, I'm going to do it every day, some days you do it for 30 seconds and you say, F this, I quit. But then some days you start it and then the ball starts rolling and next thing you know, you've knocked out two hours of great work that you wouldn't have otherwise done. So I mean, I'm really endlessly fascinated by the psychology of all this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was something that helped me in grad school. And I'm sure, you know, probably helped you when you were writing your own sort of thesis stuff is just just open. I the wouldn't file. know I've blocked all that out. <laughs> it was like there, there were days where I, where I had to tell myself just open the just double click <laughs> on the icon where it lives and then just look at it. Like, I don't care if you just mess with some page numbers or something or, like, find a sentence or, like, like just, like, and and I think it's also sometimes with tasks, too, where it's, like, pr- just promise yourself two minutes, yeah. you know? And then it turns out that, like, once you're in that two minute, you're like, oh, well, I'm in the middle of a thought or I'm in the middle of something. And then you just kind of keep keep going and it keeps snowballing. Now, all of this is great advice. Um, and then, you know, when it comes time for me to be like, all right, I'm going to write something every day. Um, that is like, yeah, but I'm tired. <laughs> or like, I'm like, not, you know, like I'm not in like the right space. It's weird. Actually. One of the, one of the interesting things is that I've done, I've done commercial work, um, and, and done songwriting for that. And like that stuff. We'll just be like, you know, uh, oh, I need a stinger for something for for a YouTube video or something, and I'll get commissioned for that. That gets knocked out in an afternoon. <laughs> Very few revisions, whatever. Feels super good. Feels super pumped. You know, see it in the video. Super excited. But like when it comes to something that is like for my own 
you know, that has my name on it, then like that is where it's like. <laughs> it's easier to do the mercenary work, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a vault hunter. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I feel like you got a kick out of that story. That one, that one lit you up. I feel like this other one's going to do it for you, too, because this actually relates pretty closely to a field of yours. One of the many gigs to which you referred is your impressive and extensive background in internet marketing, social media management. And I came across this article in a you know minor little rag called The Wall Street Journal. By the way, I love that the Wall Street Journal is doing like cool hip articles now. Like they used to be like the stodgy newspaper that told you all about what General Motors is up to. But now the millennials run that show, man. We're having fun. So, well, you know, it's all about the 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 creator and the influencer economy. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 our, it's our world now, baby. Oh. Headline in the Wall Street Journal, social media manager, the most millennial job <laughs> comes of age. And it's basically talking about how this field, which was once the thing that just, you know, the youngest person in the company was in charge of is now becoming professionalized. There are certificates for this. There's degree programs. You can get a master's in this kind of social media marketing. And, um, you know, I'll just read this quote here from the article. Some 15 years after Facebook and Twitter opened their platforms to the public, social media is an established mainstream career field. There are academic programs dedicated to its practice. Workers say it's sometimes still treated as a job for rookies, both through pay grades and interpersonal dynamics from those who think that it's just not that serious, but that's changing. Those in the field see more bargaining power and more full-time roles than ever before. I'm interested in, in your perspective because you've worked in this role and you're great at it, but you didn't get, you know, you've been in the game long enough where there was no bachelor's degree in this. Okay, no. Because, <laughs> no. you know, when we were in college, Facebook, I think just started. So like the idea of building a yeah. career out of this was still, you know, unheard of. And you've built a So what do you think of the idea of the professionalization of this field, of it being a degree field? Is that, is that even feasible to you? How long did it take for your music business textbook to be completely irrelevant once it was assigned? Yeah. Uh, Cause that's literally what's going to happen to this one. Um, because <laughs> Um, algorithms are changing by the week, um, and they tend to sometimes obfuscate a lot of the things that will make, um, a post successful, or the only things that will make a post successful are new features that are, you're trying to get crammed down your throat. There is, and, and this is me speaking as an educator, as a sociology professor, it is very hard for me um, unless it is a unless it is a professor that is a digital native and understands the shifting sands within which they work, that syllabus needs to be written on a freaking etch a sketch, because like, <laughs> you're going to have to be shaking it up like every week with every new feature that's added, every new social media platform that pops up. You imagine if. A if a social media degree had spent literally any time on Clubhouse. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly, right? So, like, things come and go. So it's going to be really interesting in seeing, you know, if we're going to be having the, a situation where we, you know, from, from like, an, you know, from, from like a, a jaded academic perspective, you're just going to see a bunch of people that used to be digital marketers that would sell ads um or something shifting into roles where they would have to teach social media maybe focusing on things like facebook and instagram and then thinking tiktok is just lip syncs and not necessarily (laughs) evolving beyond what it's actually being used for like literally today um which is going to change next week um so it's it's difficult for me as someone who has had to like craft you know a 15-week course on something um, and have that be institutionalized and things like ordering textbooks and that whole institution. I am, I am very skeptical. However, I will say that there is definitely a shift in the way that social media is seen as a professional platform. It is unfortunate that people still do the like social media intern thing as a joke, the same way that people used to think about gamers as being, you know, 13 year olds in their mom's basements 
um, and that being the lingering joke longer than it was actually relevant. So it's cute that people are catching up now. Um, and it is unfortunate, though, that there is still a little bit of stigma attached to it in the sense that we don't maybe see as much, or what, it's, it's changing now, but we don't see as much sort of like upward mobility. Community management used to be the thing you did on the way to something else. It was never you know, the thing that was your career path was community management, social media management, which are also a bunch of different things too. Um, it's it's changing, but I feel like it's every once in a while, it's still, you know, blaming, blaming stuff on the intern. And as long as that happens, it's going to keep wages and quality low. But then the idea of social media is so prevalent that you're still going to have, you know, maybe not just millennials, but, you know, Gen Xers and boomers still saying, can you make this go viral? <laughs> and I don't know how long it's going to take for that to die off, but I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> That's a great point about all this is that it's in a lot of organizations, it is still the afterthought. And I know this as much as you say that, like, companies shouldn't just be having the social media intern and then have it be the lowest rung on the ladder – a lot of companies do that because it's just, okay, the, it's the youngest person who knows how Twitter works. They get to run the Twitter. And that's so dangerous because the Twitter is your front face of your company. And if you don't have a professional there, if there's not guardrails to make sure that you don't, your company, you don't tweet something stupid with your company's trademark on it, you can, you know, it can be a very, very expensive tweet for your company. Uh, from the article here was a great quote on that. Uh, quote, the stakes of making a gaffe on an institutional social media account and the ability of nearly anyone to express displeasure or outrage over controversial content through social media mean that nearly any public facing body from startups to the CIA now has professionals behind its accounts. It's a so this is an interesting conundrum that you're pointing out that companies are in where you need somebody who knows what they're doing in that field, but you're suggesting that higher education might not be particularly well equipped in training people to be good at this field because it's changing so fast and things get obsolete so quickly. Yeah. It's, it's just like if, if the, and, and, and of course, you know, I would, I would also be wary of any, you know, kind of like, you know, sort of fly by night offering, you know, just like a random, you know, certificate on social media that isn't, um, that that doesn't take into account like i would i would worry that a lot of these degrees also would focus on things like purely marketing analytics seo um uh things by platform um uh being able to analyze design etc sort of you know the actual sort of like logistics and like nitty gritty of it but as a sociologist <laughs> i'm wondering you know how many uh, humanities courses are also being assigned to this, like, because we need to have people that know enough history and sociology and psychology um, and have enough of a well-rounded background to not just wield the technology, but also wield it responsibly. Oh, my God, <laughs> that's a really good point, that humanities plays such an important role in this. And if your social media person doesn't have their finger on the pulse of societal trends isn't somebody that's sympathetic and empathetic to the different demographic groups that are out there. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these social media people are probably coming out of business school, which does a terrible job teaching people these things. Uh, that's where you could definitely run into an issue. Man, uh, fantastic perspective. All right, we're going to take the quickest of breaks. Then we're going to be back with Chris Gethard. So excited for that. Do not go anywhere. Stay right here for Break the Business. We'll be right back. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Carella, PA, Miami, Florida.
Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at the BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. I don't care what anyone says. I love that stupid song. It's just it's it puts me in such a good mood. It sounds like one of those pharmaceutical commercial songs, but I like business right for you. (laughs) Well, welcome back to Break the Business, everybody, on Twitch, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and Sirius XM channel 145. So excited to have you here wherever you are watching or listening to us on the way too many platforms where you can do that. Let's go ahead and bring on our guest this week. He is a comedian, author, and podcaster. His talk show, The Chris Gethard Show, went from New York City public access to multiple seasons on cable. Today, he hosts the podcast Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People on Earwolf, and his latest stand-up special, Half My Life, is available now on Amazon Prime, YouTube, and Apple TV. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting chrisgeth.com. Happy to have Chris Gethard on Break the Business. Hi, Chris. Hi. How are you? So nice to meet you. Uh, nice to meet you as well. Happy to have you in our lives. Although uh, pretty much our whole life is seeing you on many of the different places where we've seen you, whether it's true TV, whether it's college humor videos or the movies you've been in, but happy to have you face to face here. I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know how you were in the waiting room and I don't know how much of the conversation you picked up on, but in the First segment of the show, we were talking about the creative process and this YouTuber who tried writing a new song every day for 30 days and said that even though he had never done that before, it was great for him. It allowed him to create in different ways. I'm interested in your perspective on the creative process. Is that something you try to do where I'm going to try to write comedy every day? I'm going to try to create something every day to keep those juices flowing? Well... Um, first I want to just say I'm very impressed by your backgrounds and your lighting between the two of you. And I'm looking at my screen, which is an open door and an unmade bed, and I'm not feeling awesome about it. So I just wanted to put that out, uh, as a caveat. Secondly, uh, I, I would say that I really applaud people who have the discipline to say I'm going to do something every day for X amount of days. There's a guy I know who has written a new song. He's written a song a day. I think he's past 10 years now. He's made like a whole thing out of it. Yeah, Jonathan it's Mann. Kind of, we, were, we were talking Jonathan about him Mann. for a second. Yeah, he's a New Yorker who I've crossed paths with. He's a really funny, sweet guy. Um, I applaud it. I, I find personally that whenever I've given myself mandates like that, I almost immediately crumble under the pressure, and then I feel bad. Like if I set a hard and fast rule, then very often if I don't, do it whether that's because real life came up or i got lazy um i feel awful but i'm a big fan of something that i think is maybe close to that which is to try to kind of always have a full to-do list and to always you know not let a day go by where i don't check off at least two or three things on it i think that's kind of my compromise with myself because anytime i've been like I want to work on a new book, so I'm going to write an essay every day. And some of these essays are going to be really bad, but then the gems are going to make up a good book. What invariably happens is I, I like fart out 250 words on the first day, feel bad about how they went, and then overthink it and don't do it the second day. And then I go, and now I've failed. <laughs> and uh, That's I'm, me. I'm a big fan You are at least a spirit like animal right now. <laughs> yeah, failure is productive, but I also don't know that – I don't know that I became an artist because I'm a big fan of like – rules and rigidity is that the word Rigid, being rigid i'll go yes. with that rigidness perhaps me I, I think you had it right all right so the chris gethard show which we know from fusion uh at least actually worked a bit with fusion by the way and then uh, <laughs> I, had like, True TV. I had like two bylines in fusion just trying <laughs> to hype you up home girl all right 
that's awesome i wonder if you had as strange times there as i did oh we 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 all pivoted to video baby it was it was it was it was like two seconds i thought it was gonna be like a like a cool moment and then i and then the phone never rang again i'm like all right that was fun (laughs) i don't think you're the only one i don't think you're the only one i've got stories we could talk for days are they still around i think they still exist right well, well well look chris we're from miami florida originally and so oh, that's where Fusion was based. That's where Fusion yep. was based, like just about 20 minutes from my house. So we're familiar with all of that, the whole kind of story. But is is there an inside piece of info on the demise of Fusion that you could share with us as so Miamians it, who are, are curious? Are they not around anymore? Like, is that official that I'm no longer biting a hand that fed me? Because if they're not around, oh. I can let my guard down. Oh, um, I don't know. I don't, I'm I mean, not I a lawyer. I mean, I'm from <laughs> I here and I can't. I can't. I don't think I've seen anything fusion related. It's in probably like a been decade. bought and sold so many times by now. I have no idea. <laughs> I can say they were like so nice when they first started with our show. Everybody, like they. I mean, they were the ones who took a chance on us. You know, we had pitched it to many networks. They took a chance, so I can never speak uh, ill of them. It was kind of hilarious for my my show, a New York City public access show, to finally get a cable opportunity on a network who stated. Um, the the demographic they were chasing was English speaking millennials of Hispanic descent. Yep. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it's like you got a weird, sad white guy and a bunch of his friends doing <laughs> a talk show too. And like it was really a strange choice. But I can tell you a few things that jump out is one, I visited their offices when they picked us up. They brought me down there and it was uh and, and I got like the hero's welcome and these people seemed excited and that was very cool. Um but I can tell you that they they put me in a room for the day because there were these meetings throughout the whole day. I was there for many hours. And the only thing they put in the room to eat was, and they were delicious, was um, like a guava-based pastry. I think like a guava-based Cuban pastry. Mm-hmm. But they left like one catering tray of those and then nothing else. So then I, I just ate them all throughout the day. I mean, I can and eat then, those all day. Those are good. <laughs> they were really good. But then... Um, and I a have. year or two later, it was after we were on Fusion, I ran into someone who was like, is it true? Like, everybody was saying when you were down there that day, you, like, ate every single one of those pastries. And apparently this was, like, the talk of the office. And I'm like, well, yeah. I, am I allowed to curse or no? Go for it. I'm like, yeah, you motherfucker. That's all you gave me. If that's all you're going to give me and I'm going to be there for eight hours, yeah, and eat the food. If you gave me a variety of food, I would have eaten a more varied uh source of food i was also shocked about two things one was that they were like super progressive in their stated goals and politics but their office did not have any sort of recycling program which i found shocking i was like that's like step one have a place to put the cans just fake it like buy a blue garbage can just so you don't have to tell people you don't um and then my my best experience with the fusion network was and for my, no, my best experience was that they put me on television, gave me a chance to live my dream, and I can't ever, ever, ever thank them enough. That's my best experience, and I don't want to bite them that feeds me. I will say my most hilarious experience working with like a small network that was at times disorganized was they once had a big meeting with us and all these different departments. This was going into season two of our show, and the um, branded content was supposed to speak and this guy clearly had not prepared and he had showed up late and everybody else had prepared and i didn't care but i could tell everybody else was kind of like dude what are you doing like everybody else made a powerpoint you're just winging it and they were like are there any brands that you might be close to having a deal with and and he kind of hemmed and hawed and then he could tell that he was like digging himself in a hole and he just goes well you know i have been talking pretty closely with trident maybe i could set something up with trident for the show and I go, oh, Trident gum, that would be cool. And he goes, no, 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 different Trident. Um, I've been working uh, really closely. I think I might be able to close some deals um, with the Trident Fish Company. <laughs> and I was like, what's, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, they're this fish company, and they have this big push coming up where they want to get people to eat less cod and eat more pollock. So maybe we could get them to advertise on the show if you'd be willing to like endorse Pollock and say that it has similar nutritional value to cod. And this is for like my hipster, like alt comedy underground New York TV show. And I just I felt everyone in the room looking at him like, what is going on right now? And I just with a totally straight face was like, close the deal, get me tried it. <laughs> 
I was about to say, given the approach that your show always took, that seems really on brand for you. Uh, It was if if that show could have become strangely sponsored by some fish company trying to push a lesser known fish into the market, it would have been so good. But the guy didn't close the deal. I I really was hoping that we'd be able to get the get the try to cash rolling in, but I couldn't make it happen. In, in your public access days, it was pretty freewheeling. Like you, you pretty much you had all kinds of weird, crazy, fun stuff going on. You got really experimental. What from your and and then you know when you went to cable, like things you had to kind of color inside the lines a little bit more. But back in the public access days, can you give us like the craziest story from something you did on the show? Was it and was it the time that you had like a kickboxer just? beat the crap out of you because you couldn't remember facts about your friends that was pretty bad that was like a true physical pain that i can still i still have sense memories of it that guy is a friend of mine who was um he's a muay thai instructor to this day and he was like rising up the amateur ranks of the new york muay thai scene my friend pj and he really gave it to me he knew it was funniest to not hold back (laughs) um as far as the craziest stuff like the craziest ideas we executed or the craziest things that just happened? I feel like the second one might give us something even more insane. Although you're the, the stuff that happened on the camera was pretty crazy yeah. too, but it probably ties more into creativity. I mean, one thing that I really loved that we did and I actually stand by it, is a lot of the fans of the show. Um, like the, the people who are all about the public access era, will often say that we did this one episode called Looking at Dicks in the Dark and that it's like one of their favorites. And I, I really stand by it because the, we were basically on New York Public Access, you're allowed to have nude. Oh, did we lose Chris? Uh, Chris? Oh, and what a time to lose him. Chris, are you there? Oh gosh, I think we lost. Man, what a time to oh, lose no. Chris uh, on the on on the dicks in the dark <laughs> sketch. I'm heartbroken. Well, oh, no. well, Elisa, if we get Chris back, oh, maybe? Do, do we have you, Chris? No, he's still popping in oh, and he's out. Still stuttering. But uh, oh. we'll see if we can get him back there in a second. Um, <laughs> when we, if and when we do get Chris back, and God, I hope that we do, because what a time oh, to lose God, him. I need to right? know everything. Um. I want to ask him about what he's done in the space of, you know, with the with the public access show, and that's how he got his start. What it would mean, say, if he did public, if he did a, if he was trying to make it today as a sketch comedian, mm. how would he get his start? Right. So back then it was UCB and public access, but if he was going today, like a lot of these sketch comedians now are doing with TikTok and YouTube, how would he get his start if he had to start from zero today? And I'd be interested in getting his perspective from that. Uh, Lauren, do we have uh, Chris back? Oh. I hope. Because what a great story that he <laughs> left us on. Chris, are you there? Hello. I'm so sorry. No, it's quite all right. <laughs> we are we are here with bated breath. Oh, wait, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Can you hear us? Maybe? Possibly? <laughs> oh, no. I'm this guy. <laughs> I'm in a, I'm in a Chris Kevin sketch right now. They, when I was in the waiting room, I could hear you. Oh. So hmm. I'll tell you two things. One, looking at Dicks in the Dark, we built a giant skirt. Four men stood inside it. This is because we weren't allowed to be nude in the studio. And what the topic of the show was, was you could call up and ask us questions about the other men's genitalia. <laughs> and it was basic shock value and a very, very dumb idea. But what it quickly turned into that I cannot claim that I was actually intending or smart enough for was it was just sort of this thing of like, okay, we're just going to answer questions about each other. And it was like four dudes. And instead of being squeamish, it's like after 10 minutes, we just like answer questions. And it kind of was like, yeah, I guess like a bunch of men looking at each other and we're not going to feel like a stigma about that. And we're going to feel body positivity and maybe like compliment each other's pubic hair trims and like kind of became this lovely thing of like, why we're all in our thirties. Why are we going to sit here and be like, test the goals. Like, let's just bodies are bodies. So it actually became very positive as far as your question, which I was able to hear. Oh, good. And now I cannot hear you. <laughs> no. So what I'll do is I'll answer this and I'll refresh again. And I'm so, so sorry to ruin your show in this way. 
because um, I could hear you perfectly. And then when you patched me through, I could not. But if I was now, I, I mean, UCB in New York has died. It's very sad to me. Comedians of my ilk, I'm not positive where they're going to go. It's still in LA, so that's very good. But also IO and Chicago closed, like a lot of the institutional improv and sketch places. So I'm not sure where people go, but I think the the obvious and simple answer is um, is uh, Instagram. There's a comedian who I really, really love named Megan Stalter, who I think is like, I kind of feel, when she and I have talked about it, like she came up after me, she was in Chicago and uh, uh, her friends used to watch my old public access show. When she moved to New York, we connected and I thought she was great. And she told me that. So I feel like we're of the same cut from the same cloth and she's made just like a massive impact just by doing characters on Instagram and doing Instagram live shows and say, you know, you'll see her 2 PM. She'll be like, tonight we're going to do a seminar on blah, blah, blah. And then she goes and does it and just carves away and creates a fan base that way. And now she, uh, she has a show on the HBO max show hacks where she keeps, Every scene she's in, she kind of steals it. She plays the secretary, uh, Kayla. She's awesome. So that's probably the answer is social. But then I also feel very, very worried for artists that that is the answer. Because one thing that I really hate and that I would love to talk more about if we can figure out how I can hear you is um, is one thing I really hate is what Facebook did to all these smaller independent platforms and kind of crushed video platforms for comedians and i really hate comedians only being able to connect and build audiences through platforms that i think um like facebook owns my facebook list i don't know my facebook list right you know instagram that's facebook right facebook owns my instagram friend list i don't own my friend list and for artists to kind of be beholden and have to chase that i don't trust mark zuckerberg at all with my well-being as an artist he's killed other platforms he cooked there was a there used to be an era where well now he muted himself <laughs> Oh, and now we lost him again. Why is it that right when he's on the verge of making a really amazing point, we lose him? My heart hurts. This is amazing. Chris, do we have you? This is very on brand. This is very on brand for me. Can can you hear hear us? Okay, great. Thank God. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Where did I leave off? Zuck uh, sucks. You were trashing yeah. Mark Zuckerberg. I was. And I think rightfully, man, there was it, it there used to be the onion used to do stuff, funny or die, college humor. Yes. Yeah. It used to be all above average. All these platforms for comedians were a lot there was a whole generation like there's a certain age fan of mine where there's people who still come up to me and quote one or two college humor sketches. And I know the exact age they were in high school and college. And there was this thing where comedians could get acting jobs and writing jobs on these platforms that weren't like you weren't going to make big money, but you might be able to pay your rent as an artist. And it was this step that hadn't existed before. That was a beautiful thing. Facebook comes along People start getting huge numbers on their videos on Facebook. Everybody starts chasing Facebook. But the thing is, you have to pay to play on Facebook. They start telling you, no, not only um, if you want your Facebook, if you want your list of fans who have signed up for your work to see it, you got to pay to advertise it. So now not only are you not making money via this work, which used to happen, now you're actually paying to play, Hmm. which pay to play is an enemy phrase for any artist as soon as possible in your career if you can get out of pay-to-play situations whether that's like an open mic that forces you to you know comedy it's bringer shows you have to bring 10 10 people Mm. you have to sell 10 tickets musicians there's a whole culture hey if you pay to get on stage you can be part of this showcase and then showcase for whom for the fucking shady bar owner who took your money so zuckerberg just made like a big giant thing and then not only is that did that kill off those platforms that used to actually be able to provide artists with living after all those platforms were dead, it came out that they were faking those numbers. Anyway, those video numbers, everybody's getting these massive numbers on Facebook and then they have to admit, yeah, if somebody watched it for two seconds on an auto scroll on their phone, they counted that as a view. So it was all a lie and they killed a lot of artistry and a lot of artist opportunities. So yeah, I don't like them. So that does scare me that social media is the answer on how artists are going to connect with audiences because social media 
they haven't done right by artists for five seconds, if you ask me. And I'm crusty and old and past my prime, so I'm allowed to say that now, you know? I'd be remiss if we did not take a moment to talk about your new special coming out. And, you know, there's so many things we could be talking about. Your your fantastic Earwolf uh, podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. But I do want to give a, a chance for you to talk about your new special, um, <clears throat> Half My Life, available now on Amazon Prime, YouTube, Apple TV, all these fantastic streaming platforms. Because one of the things I like about your special is that you did a lot of clips from a lot of independent venues. Uh, you were at like a, a gator farm at one point. You were kind of in different <laughs> places. You know, in terms of kind of promoting indie creators and the places they play, what was driving your interest in wanting to perform in venues like that? Well, those are the venues I really love and that I've always really loved. So a lot of it is as simple as that. Um, you know, some of it is, you know, my, I did a special on HBO. I'm very, very proud of it. And I, I think it's probably like the crown jewel of things I've accomplished in many ways. But I do know, like, when you do it on a platform like that or Netflix, these big money things, like, I always laugh because you see any comedian you see, you see they, they're wearing, like, really nice sneakers they bought that day. And that's probably an outfit that, like, they just spent more on. And, and that venue is fancy. So everything's fancy. And it's kind of like this celebration of your work and the opportunity. That's great. But it's not really our reality. I just think the reality of being an artist is pretty interesting in its own right. You know, to go into a room where there's 100 people, 120, 200 people, and you can make eye contact with everybody and the ceiling's low and they might talk to you and have a conversation. Like, that is the reality. And even for me, like, I had my own TV show and I had, you know, an HBO special, but I still, the first show that we cover in the documentaries in Buffalo, and then I rent a car, I drive to Detroit. That's that's not a put-on for this documentary. It's like what being an artist is, like, I think people would be shocked that even artists that have attained a pretty solid level of success, like you're very often still like you're the one schlepping your own suitcase to the merch table and selling it yourself and hooking that square reader into your phone. You know, like it's still, it's a very rarefied air in my opinion of these artists who wind up with private jets, you know, like in comedy, it's like Kevin Hart and Amy Schumer play football stadiums and people who play arenas, but most of us, it's these little venues and there's beauty there. So I kind of wanted to show that beauty. I wanted to show the self-doubt that comes with that after all these years. And then also very important to me was a lot of times at my shows, I feel the best about moments that are unplanned. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really feel like those things could be shown in a genuine way if I just shot it in one fancy venue again. So Luckily, I, my instinct was right. And, you know, like we have footage in Baltimore where a girl gets on stage and starts demonstrating wrestling holds on me. And like, it's a real thing. And then she reveals that her friend brought her to the show and she's never heard of me before. And like, that's so funny to me that I'm getting like physically beaten up on stage by someone who's not a fan, <laughs> whose friend dragged them along. Like, that's just so funny. And you can't plan that. So I wanted to do the whole tour and I self-funded the whole thing so that I didn't have to get any notes on it. And thankfully I didn't lose money on it. I like got enough. I got a deal. Just, I just, I think I only lost like one or two grand on it. It's pretty astounding based on what I spent. Um, so yeah, I wanted to do it my own way. I wanted to show the realities of my life and wanted to kind of open it up. So I might be able to get some footage of some of the unpredictable stuff. And I think it checked all those goals. You know, it's not a perfect special, and it's rough around the edges. And you'll hear, like, I couldn't afford a dedicated sound team. So we were just like, local, like, all right, who's who has lav mics in Baltimore? Let's find them on Craigslist and hire them. It was like that type of thing. So the sound is kind of different from thing to thing. But I think it has a lot of that grittiness and it's a little rough around the edges. But people can tell it's because it's the real deal. It's, it's, it is what it's claiming it to be. And, uh, I'm just trying to show a little bit of reality. Wow. And there's a lot of jokes in there, too. And it's in stark contrast to the conventional way that a lot of these Netflix specials are being done by other stand-up comedians where everything is super polished. It's not even one camera anymore. It's always multi-cam now with these things. It's a lot of production, a lot of 
pomp and circumstance. And what you're saying is a lot of those comedians that are doing these specials, I mean, with the exception of the Kevin Hart's and folks like that, but just the you know the next tier of stand-up comedians, they're doing that really polished special on Netflix. And then the next week, they might be at a hole in the wall again because that's the reality of the life. Oh, I think undoubtedly most of them are. And I say that with great pride in that being my life too. Like, you know, I think com- like com- in my experience, comedians and musicians share a real bond. Mm-hmm. And then I also feel like pro wrestlers, weirdly, whenever comedians and pro wrestlers mix and musicians and pro wrestlers, yes. Yes. there's this sort of like, and I have like a, a good friend of mine who's a juggler I see from time to time, like actual circus performers. Like, oh, yeah. it's a little bit of a carny lifestyle, you know? Um, it's a little bit of like, all right, the show in, the show in Detroit's over, so I, I okay, I get on that plane at six in the morning, and I have a transfer in Minneapolis, so I can get to the next one. And it is, it's sawdust on the floor, and it's it's no one's gonna do the work for you, so you go and you get it done. And um, yeah, I, I, those Netflix, you know, they're they're nice. They're like these, like I said, these shiny things, and your parents get to be proud of you, and you get to show yourself working at a level you have earned. But uh, even the best comedians, I think many of them still are at a point like myself where I am playing small venues. Um, and a lot of us still romanticize it too. And yeah, I mean, I could talk forever too about Netflix and how dangerous they are for comedy, but that's a whole other thing too. Oh my God. That would have been, that's a great jumping off point. Why are we at the end of the show? We have to have you back. Chris. I mean, I know you're probably really busy with the rollout of this, but I'm in a mood. I'm in a mood. You can tell. I know. Stop putting out 200 specials a year, man. See, it's, it's this, it's the damn radio show that we have now. If we didn't, if we weren't radio, we could just go for hours and hear your stories. But now we're in a damn time slot. It's like what you, it's like what you had to go through when you, you moved to cable. This is wildly frustrating. Find well, out more about our guest's work. My uh, computer froze 19 times. Oh. My bad on that. <laughs> that made it even better. Find out more about our guest's work by visiting chrisgeth.com. Our guest is Chris Gethard, comedian. Check out his latest stand-up special, Half My Life. It's available now on Amazon Prime. Chris, before we let you go, one last question that we ask all the guests who come on our program. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Yeah, I mean, I guess the main thing I would say is other people's success has nothing to do with your success or failure. Like if someone else gets a thing you were gunning for, it doesn't mean you were going to get it if they didn't. So just be happy for them, especially if they're a friend and they've also worked hard. Uh, The other thing I would just say to all creators out there of whatever level you're at is it's hitting a point where it's on us to start taking back the initiative to do things the right way. I'm like tired, like... I fired my old agents with my new ones. I'm no, I'm no hero, man. And there's other people who do this better than I do. But I'm like, if you can avoid Ticketmaster fees, avoid them. If you can play a venue that's independent and not tied into some massive company, go with the art space. Even if you make a little bit less, if you can do an all ages show instead of 21 plus, do it. And especially this whole idea of things being indie or all. Like, if you're like an alternative comedian or an alternative musician and you're still playing a venue that charges your audience $40 a ticket and two overpriced drinks, like, what are you the alternative to? Uh, what are you the alternative to? Oh. So step up and do it the right way. I'm tired of Indian alt being an image instead of a set of ethics. It needs to stop. It needs to stop. These cool kids who – they need. it needs to stop. Oh, my guy spit me. <gasps> I'm very tired. Fire over Fire. here. Mood. Chris, yeah, we go all night. This Cheers. has been an absolute treat, my man. Like, oh. look, any anytime you want to go on one of these rants again, like we will, do. whoever no we have booked that week, we cares about my opinions anymore. This guy does, this girl does. No. We'll bump whatever Church. guest we have to have you come back. <laughs> Find out more about our guest work by visiting chrisgeth.com. Best of luck with the special. Um, you know, big, honestly, big fan of your work and really appreciate you taking the time to ha- come hang out with us this week. Oh, please. Thanks. And again, I'm so, so sorry about those freeze ups. This was this was really lovely. And I appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Not a problem. Oh, what a rush. Wow. That was that was awesome. Everything about that interview, (laughs) even the technical failures was I mean, it was absolutely worth it. It was as advertised when you have Chris gathered on your show and then the dismount at the end, Elisa church just fire flames so good so good oh 
Uh, yeah. Well, our thanks to Chris Gethard for joining us this week. Be sure to check out our show next week. I have another great guest, entertainment attorney Mitra Ahurian is going to be joining us. She is fantastic. One of my favorite entertainment lawyers. Excited to get to talk to her for the first time. And uh, so much great, so many great episodes coming up. Please don't go anywhere. You're going to love the show. Elisa, thank you so much for joining me this week. This has been a treat. Always love talking to you. Always love being here, Ray. All right. And thank you all for watching Break the Business, listening to Break the Business. We'll see you next week.